Welcome back to another Black Brilliance branded conversation with my man. This is going to be a good one. We have these discussions with the movers, the shakers, the influencers, the people who are pushing culture in the direction that it needs to go. And that epitomizes our guest today for today's conversation. We've got Mr. Michael Blue Williams in the building. How I'm are great. you, sir? Now, before, before we get into it, I got to give people a real picture about who I'm talking to because some folks may not know. Now, if they don't know, it's on them, but I like to help people out. I'm going to try to help people out. This is a guy who is arguably one of the, if not for a period of 30 years, the biggest name behind the artist that you know, the biggest name behind the biggest artist that you've ever heard. And that goes back from his days working with Jodeci where he got his start to really when he was making things pop all up and through Flavor Unit and Flavor Union Management. Shout out Shaquem and, and, and Latifah and everybody else over there. And then where he transitioned and current day artists that you know and love, you got Nas, you got Outkast, which is a huge, I mean, just an insuperable list of folks. And he's going to get into that later. But today... I want to welcome him to the virtual couch. Thank so you, man. I appreciate you having me on here. I, I, I just admiring the, the, the hoodie. As a, I need one of those um, as my proper um, airport attire. And <laughs> yes, it's going to happen. I got you. I, I got you. It's going to happen. Just be prepared. You're going to get a lot of looks from folks that don't look like us. So I just wear, be prepared. I wear, for that. I wear hoodies like that to places like um, when I go to places where you just don't see a lot of us. I like to get the reaction. So if I'm if, when I'm mm -hmm. going way out in the middle of nowhere, that that's kind of what I like to rock through the airport and through you know if I'm popping through Trump country. <laughs> Me and Team Black Brilliance will make sure you get one. Um, you know that that brings me to a very interesting point. Hip hop, uh, and you are as well. You know I can talk about hip hop all day long, uh, and you're as well versed on this as anyone who I would have the opportunity to speak to. And so that's why I'm super excited about this conversation. We're in a time when uh, politically our voices are imperative. They're necessary. They are, it's a non-negotiable. And hip hop has always had this revolutionary strand within its DNA, this political strand within its DNA. It may not have expressed itself the way that the establishment wanted or was looking for but that's what made it work and it always had something to say do you think current day hip-hop is meeting its obligation in that vein is staying true to that do you think it's less uh vocal about the things that matter or about where it should I definitely be? say le yeah, less than it should be i think that i think we've kind of skipped away from our responsibility of being the voice of what's mm. really going on in the streets. It's easy when, when George Floyd happens and things like that, then people want to jump in. But the everyday piece that we could be speaking up and speaking on, um, the using of influence. I think there are always been and always will be some artists that understand their political responsibility. Um, but I think that so much of hip hop has gotten caught up in just looking and acting like they're popping and doing this and um, almost being intelligent, being aware of what's going on is almost not cool. 
And so it's it's like mm. I don't want to say the wrong thing and alienate fans, or, or right, I don't right. want to I don't want to sound uneducated. Then educate yourself, like then to ask questions when you when you have if something doesn't seem right, do some research. But if if being the voices that have done that, the voices that express to me any sense of presence and 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 use their power, Kendrick, J Cole those artists, I feel like there should be more people come sprouting out like them. And I feel like just as a people, mm-hmm. we, we are rewarding mediocrity. And some of that mediocrity is to kind of just keep dumbing us down. I think that that's the problem right now. You, you, you've said, you've set off a bunch of different light bulbs in my head and, and I, I've got so much to ask you about. And before we even get to the fun <laughs> stuff, um, you're, so you're in a position where, as a manager, you are responsible for making sure that these folks are in the right spaces, that they're taking advantage of the right opportunities, that you are helping them build the relationships and the connections that are going to help them level up. How do you manage or reconcile what you just said about, yo, I don't want to, I don't really want to mess up my bag. You know what I mean? In a, in, in a in a world where the business model has changed, where, you know, people could potentially mess up their bag around a political statement that, you know, a particular business or board member found offensive. And so now they, they don't want to give you that endorsement deal or they don't want to allow you to sort of participate in this event with them. And then now they're looking at you like, yo, I said the right thing about this issue, but they took away my check. How do you how do you reconcile that in terms of talking? I to think them about that, that that first my job is is to I always tell people you got to know who your client is, and and part of knowing who your client okay. is is knowing if they can get away with it. Can, how how are they going to receive? You don't want to throw mm-hmm. the wrong client out there because they it might hurt them. But if you want an example, Killer Mike very vocal, very. Have, have, does yeah. everything doesn't yeah. if, if you don't agree he stood by bernie some people didn't agree with bernie like but he did and he stood by and, and he speaks on it and he and he's open to listening and maybe shifting if he finds out this information i think that it hasn't hurt him i think it's opened up more doors for him i think cardi b cardi jumps on and she's speaking sometimes and whether she's always got the right understanding the message is right, but you can tell she's passionate, but it's usually, she's usually on a position of what she sees that's being done wrong to regular people. Like she's still a person. She's still, she's from the BX. She's a people a person. It's not, it's whack out here. The school's like, so she's speaking on it and it's not costing her money. So I think some of it is knowing who your client is and, and knowing the right places, maybe to let them tap in to and speak up. But also the argument that, yes, you so what you lose Home Depot. You never really had Home Depot because the owner of Home Depot is racing. So you didn't right. lose the Home Depot opportunity, right, right, right. but maybe you gained the Lowe's opportunity because someone on the Lowe's board saw you and was like, oh, he's an intelligent or she's an intelligent person. I'd like to be in business with him. So you never know what one door, what one statement may close a door can open another one. And it's part of the artist team, myself, if I'm on the team, to explore the other doors 
that we want to come from a statement. I don't think, you know, I think there's a, there's a level of ignorance, I will say, right now that I'm seeing amongst in the black community, especially among black males. Um, there's this, things were great when Trump was in with office, blah, blah, blah. When Trump was in, we was balling and all this other stuff. Right. And it's like, nah, man, like, first of all, the first thing is Trump is living off of Obama's years. Understand, if you don't understand the basis that the four years after really what you see the results of the, the four before in general. Economic indicators lost and lag. So, yeah. yeah, Biden's going to come in. You're going to be mad at Biden, but you're mad at Biden for stuff to happen during Trump's term. The, 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 the supply chains being messed up, the pandemic, all that kicked in. And you, so I think, though, because we haven't maintained a, a level of importance to getting the message out, even now, as, as with a lot of us are talking about, um, well, what have Democrats done for blacks? And I, I think sometimes there's a lot of talking without any like real research and studying and things like that. So when I have an artist, whether it's Nick Cannon, Nick is a very learned type of, of person. He's going to look and read and try and understand what he's speaking on. Somebody she worked with, that ain't right. what they do. So when you see opportunities, personally, when I see opportunities to educate them on things, I educate them. You, I've never had an artist. I, I tell us all the time, I don't want a stupid artist. Part of the success of mm. Shaquem and Latifah with Flavor Unit is that they are on the same page. And they're both intelligently looking for the yeah. next thing. And so having an intelligent artist that understands the world, what's going on, if they're in a room with somebody that could lead to a check, how to work their way over to that check, get the information, pass the number on to me, let me circle back around, get us a check. That's my type of artist. You know. Right. They know how to get to the bag. <laughs> like for real, for yeah. real, get to the bag. I I get it. Um so you know. With that, I think part of what you were just talking about, and you use two very different examples, but they still illustrate the point of, I think part of what you hit on was the notion of brand integrity. Like when you establish your brand as being what it is and you stay true to that, it makes it harder for people to sort of like come in later on and be like, oh, you said X, Y, Z. It's like, nah, he's been consistent. This is who he is. You know. This is what you're going to get. And with the, and that's definitely the killer Mike model. The Cardi model is no matter how far up I go, I'm still Cardi. I'm still going to comment on regular people's shit. If I see something that look crazy, I'm going to say something about it. I might say something about it from inside my 24-bedroom <laughs> mansion, but I'm still going to say something about it because that part of me hasn't changed. And I think that that's just very important in terms of artists, artist development, because now, unlike 92 or 88, we live in a 24-7 news cycle and people have way more access to artists and who they are. You can't just curate a stage show and then like a couple interviews and have people thinking that they know you. No, they want to watch you on IG. They want to see you go live. They want to see you brush your teeth. Mm -hmm. it's, a whole, it's a whole thing. So you have to think very, very carefully about that notion of brand integrity. I, I, I want to ask you, um, you talked about sort of the, 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 the corporate side, if you will, of 
how artists are showing up. I want to talk to you about the talent side. And you you, you touched on this a little bit. Um, how do you now, as someone who's been watching talent, watching elite level talent, like GOAT level talent, um, for three decades, how do you operate in a space where it's not about substance or talent necessarily. It's about how quickly can you get famous? How much of a following do you have? What kind of numbers can you come to a label with already built in in terms of your YouTube, your Instagram, your subscribers, your TikTok? And you as someone who's been evaluating talent, how do you navigate that? Man, to be honest, it's been difficult. It's very difficult because mm -hmm. I've always believed in talent and I believe that if you give me good talent, then I can do my thing and we can make something happen. I, I, whether it's CeeLo Green, Macy Gray, Life Jennings, um, people that people didn't even get their talent, but we've been able to take that talent and get the world to see it and let the talent speak for itself. Now, where it's not about the talent, it's just about being famous or um, it's, it's become more of a popularity contest than a talent show. Um, it's harder to navigate because it's more, um, it's more games being played. It's more the TikTok game. It's more Instagram. It's more spins. It's more, can I buy this to look like this? It's, it's not as yeah. fun for me. And, and it's probably... I, I almost feel like Bill Belichick or, or, or Nick Saban. I think like Saban retired because he didn't like this whole NIL game. Not doesn't mean he can't coach anymore, yeah. but the recruitment game and picking the talent and how you get the best talent and all that, how you can even talk to them. And the transfer the portal, portal and all that, yeah. To the talent has, like, has made coaching for him probably not as fun as it was even five years ago. I feel a little like that on management. Like I still look for stars. I still look for people that I think can 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 change the game if they got the right opportunity. But for a couple of years now, I've had some really talented artists that couldn't break through that system or, or break through the looking for a viral moment or break through. Um, and I think part of that is planned. I, I believe that. Um, as the industry has shifted to a streaming world, I have a theory. And so my theory is that the labels used to get a star, make so much money off the stars that they could take chances on developing another wave of talent. So it was always star driven. Mm. So Mariah Carey in a Sony system allows Sony to develop Genuine and Jagged Edge and the other artists under there. So our labels were vested in finding new stars because that next star would then allow them to chase the next. In to, com to, to compare, it's almost like uh, how at major schools, the football program yes. pays for everything in terms of money generated by football and basketball. They bring in enough money to sustain Soccer, the water polo everything. that brings in no money or whatever. Right. But yeah, now gotcha. you flip it. And now it's a streaming game. So now it's a volume game. And so all of the labels own a piece of all the streaming services, just 
just so there's some transparency, transparency that everyone doesn't understand. All the labels on a piece of all the, the streaming services. So whether they spend a bunch of money developing an artist or not, the streams are what's feeding the growth of these companies now. So they want more in in the pot. They want streams, streams, streams. So now as opposed to spending money to develop stars, for hence why you don't have a new Bieber, that's why you don't have any boy bands, why you don't have any girl groups, because mm -hmm. those require development and the labels don't want to do that. What they want to do is let a sexy red through, let this one through, because then sexy red generates 10,000 more girls that want to be her. And nothing against mm. her, but she's not saying nothing. So the girls that come after her don't think they have to say anything. But if you're the streaming services, those 10,000 girls are uploading 40, 50, 100 tracks. They're feeding the machine. The labels don't wow. spend any money on artists now because they expect what they learned through 90s and 2000s. We want to be on so bad that we'll go find the drug dealer. Yeah. We'll go find some rich person that wants to be in the game. We'll go get some family money. We'll do all the work. The label can just sit back and wait for that work to become a blip on one of their radars. And then they'll come in and they'll throw money at that. And then we get the money they throw at it. And we went out and tell everybody, I got a $5 million deal from Columbia. I got a $5 million from here. Now everybody yeah. has to figure yeah. out how to get to their five. It's like, What's completely lost focus is, is the talent any good? Are the artists saying anything? Is there any substance? No, because we don't own enough radio stations. We don't have enough input. If, if you tried to create a white, sexy red right now, she would be shut down before you even got a spin. If you, if you look at Lil Nas X, his success and the things that he's able to get away with, right? Then you look and you look at Sam Smith and his last project. First project, Darling of Everybody. They obviously was like, yo, turn down the gay, just sing your songs and we'll win and we'll get you on black radio. Boom. But after he saw Lil Nas X, he decided to come out this project outside, outside. Extra. <laughs> Extra. Extra. And he, you see. Rainbow, everything. glitter, everywhere. Look, look Let's go. Happened. You ain't heard that much about it. Like, what I'm saying is we don't control enough yeah. of our airwaves and our messaging that people are following what looks like it works. And it takes one thing. And I'm saying it sorry, takes more courage these days to not just be chasing the bag, but to really be about your art and say, you know what? I'm gonna find five hundred thousand people that really rock with me and I'm gonna feed my fans because this is where my heart and my integrity is before I sell out like that. Kind of sort of like um, someone who's kind of pioneering uh, the direct-to-consumer model like Ryan Leslie. Someone who's like, yo, I'm, I'm going to make my, my music and I'm going to go directly to my consumers and maintain relationships with them there. And it just be a more intimate experience for the listener. And I can keep my quality where I need it to be. As opposed to I'm trying to get a billion streams so that I can, you know, get a quick check. Um, so I respect it. One thing I want your take on last year, 2023 was the first year that we had not seen a hip hop or rap record on the billboard charts, really like get up there and stay up there. 
What do you make of that? Is that a is that a quality thing? Is it a consumer thing? What do you, where do, what does that tell you about not just the substance because we've talked about that, but about like how the industry is responding to what what we've been talking. Um, I mean, Mike, it's, it's kind of obvious. I think that hip hop has plateaued, which we never thought it would. I think that our subject matter has gotten wow. boring to as much as we are these faces of hip hop, the consumers have always been white. Um, and I think that after 30 years of selling this drug story, we're like and selling drugs or like, I think that the creativity has, has gotten dull and lazy. And I think that we plateaued and I think hip hop run at the top will now have peaked out in great ways that we've been number one for a minute. I believe that we're about to see a decline in hip hop in the numbers, obviously in the artists that are signed. I think that the labels are gonna start shifting towards things like Afrobeats and they're gonna to switch to Latin artists um, because those feel fresh and the music feels more fresh. And I think that hip hop um, should prepare for a rude awakening that these years on the top have been taken for granted. Mm. Um, did we max out our power structure and do it? No, we've done some amazing things. Um, but I think we should prepare that the time of hip hop at its highest has, has probably passed. I think there's, there's, too, there's not enough. So you think, wow, that, that, that says a lot. Like the idea that we could consider because you and I are old enough. Some listeners may not be, but you and I are definitely old enough to understand that hip hop was not always the dominant global cultural force that it emerged to be. Let's just say, let's chart its peak, right? Like its peak, peak in terms of global impact and influence. Let's just say the turn of the millennial. Let's just, in terms of like yeah. globally, like it was already in terms of nationally, you know, moving the needle around every aspect of culture, but globally with the, with the uh, uh, promulgation of the internet in a way to sort of get people access to hip hop and hip hop culture, it exploded as not only a cultural, but also an economic mm -hmm. force. It's hard for us to conceptualize those days might have been numbered, which is crazy, but it makes a lot of sense. I I, I hear you. It makes a it, ton it of sense. There was a time when there was a time uh, when we oh those of us old enough to remember, remember LL's Gap commercial, right? Like we remember. Yeah, with the, of course, yeah, those elements with the football hat. When there was a certain feeling when when Buster and and Spliff had the the Mountain Dew commercials, like we can we are old enough to remember yeah. where. Hip hop being in commercials was a, almost a source of pride. Like, yo, we we are growing. Like, we are getting there. Now everything's saturated. Stay Nights, mate. Stay Nights had a whole advertising campaign where they got Wu Tang, Ice Cube, and other people to make new songs for the ads, which was nuts. And now we hear it on everything: McDonald's commercials, Pampers commercials, yeah. some new drug ad, or whatever. Yeah. That was rock before we came through the door. <laughs> like we, like if you pay attention, mm, like mm. things. That's the cycle. You're gonna have a great run, but we came through and kicked rock out. So it, it was hard for us in the middle of it to imagine it. But I, I just think that we got lazy um, from a creative. We haven't really 
we've been on this southern run for let's say 20 years let's give it 20 years let's say that's a fair number that's outcast everybody came through the door and you've had future and all this in this whole run and that includes the wayne and all that that's still to me all southern um but we haven't grown hip-hop in that time we haven't been as creative as we've been we haven't we haven't pushed the envelope on on lyrics on um on just the the growing the the the, the hip-hop culture because it felt like we had arrived and so now i just need to yeah. just come out and drop rhymes but the labels tricked everybody too because because it became about volume it used to be let me finish up these five six albums so i can get off this deal and either get a new one or whatever but then the labels started to mm-hmm. get artists to drop mixtapes in between the albums and so we need to drop a mixtape first then we'll drop an ep then we'll drop an album and and so people got used to getting a lot of music inexpensive like just constantly because it was being streamed and then the artists stopped even critiquing their own i used to tell a certain artist i worked with i'm like first thing you, you're teaching your, your, your fans bad habits you're teaching them that they can get the mixtape for free skip over your paid album and wait for the next mixtape you're going to drop but then mixtapes used to be my hottest joints while i'm waiting to get a deal so then i can do a hotter album mixtapes now are yeah. the 10 records that didn't make my album but there's a reason 10 records didn't make the album like you didn't have 19 good records you had nine or 10 good records but because you're trying to feed this machine now you're putting out 19 records and that's happening in a way that's bad for the, the culture i i got two questions on that one right there i mean you're opening up so many doors because these are see what you're doing in this conversation for folks like me who really have discussions about the industry but have not sort of been in that aspect of the industry you're confirming a lot of shit that we talk about mm-hmm. that we sort of know but like you're like actually giving context to it um on that last point i have i, I have two questions uh do you think that well the one one question is how do you reconcile impressing upon an artist the need to take their art seriously in a world where the way we consume music is so rapid and go like it used to be nice and smooth epmd whomever you know whatever they get into the studio they would work on something you wouldn't hear from them for a minute they would come out Y'all got a new sound. They would start working an album. They would get on shows. They would get on tours. They would, you know what I'm saying, get the, they would work their album, work their shows, do the promotional circuit. And then when it was time to go back for another album, they take the time off, go back, and that's what it is. In today's world, because of that cycle where people are always putting stuff out, my first question is how do you reconcile that in terms of like how do you tell an artist I don't, I understand you don't want to sort of go cold or lose people's attention span, but you need to really focus on the production of your art and not get so caught up in like out of sight, out of mind. And second, I'm not trying to air nobody out, but there were, there was a period where after we're talking about like 90, we're talking about like 96, 95, 96, 97, when Tupac dropped a double album. When Biggie dropped the double album, people started to want to drop double albums that, in my opinion, had no business dropping double albums. 
that happened and then also because of his let's say challenges with universal wayne went nuts on the mixtapes in the yeah. early 2000s what impact my second question is what impact do you think that had on what we were just talking about in terms of like i need to fill up this roster of music so even if it wasn't good enough to make my album i still got to put it out um I, so to the first part i think the double albums i think to your first point the ability to communicate with your clients what is their goal understanding the goal allows me to mm. manage expectations um and that's 90 percent of what as a manager you're doing you're managing everyone's expectations so if my artist just wants to be famous and he just wants to get his music out and all that, then you got to let him just fling it out. If you want to be great and they're serious about being great, it's naturally going to take them more time. You can't rush greatness. You got to go in there and you have to cook the soup. But nowadays it, it's not more to having an argument with an artist about an album. You almost don't, don't care. You still care about the quality, but the reality is, an artist making an album today is almost wasting his time. And I'll explain why. 95% of people don't listen to albums in order anymore. They bounce around. Yeah. So if your album, when you yeah. made an album, you wanted it to be heard in this way. Tell yes, a story. Tell a picture. Yeah. It's, it, it doesn't matter. Equimini. ATL is like albums that were had themes, Illmatic, it was written. These these were albums with themes that told stories and they were works of art that you needed to step back and consume yes. together. But imagine listening to Illmatic and you start at number 12 and then you skip to seven, but your impression was number 12. So now you think the album's whack because I heard number 12 and it, no, because you put it on shuffle. If you listen, you know what I'm saying? It, by the time you got to 12, 12 would even made more sense in the context. But now right, you right. drop its bounce. Because if you put it on Apple, it's going to start at what is the most popular record. And then it's going to work them down through that, mm. that order. Now, a lot of times, depending on how you decide to listen to your music. So you as a manager and, and have to reconcile that, hey, this is going to get consumed. For me, I have to go back to me having to adjust like a Nick Saban does. My way of doing this has kind of always been what worked. In today's game, it doesn't work as much. So I have to adjust to the game or I have to transition to a different um, position in today's game. And that's kind of where I am, where I can keep beating myself in the head trying to understand today's rap and do, or I can recognize, you know what? I've outgrown today's rap game. It's okay. I'm not going to be, one of them old players complain about the young boys is doing how much they make and I'm cool with that. I just, I may understand that what I do is I build brands and I don't, I build brands, brands. I'm not out here trying to just, Ooh, I got a name and I'm hot for six months. That makes me a brand. So you shift and you start trying to find opportunities to build new brands that will have long term. And once in a while you see an artist these days that kind of gets the juices flowing, you feel good about it. And maybe you jump in, um, but it's harder to do those things. And if you think about it, it goes back to what I said, we're not in the business of making stars anymore. 
So like we make great hot mm. artists for a moment. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like everyone's having these moments and they matter. And some of them, their music has doesn't matter anymore as much as their social media, their TMZs and their those things have kept popping. But musically they're kind of cold. But you don't know it because social media keeps them relevant in that sense. But it's just a it's a different game. And and I just don't know how you put like if you want to use an example, like Ryan Leslie type. I think that real artists that have real messages that really want to get their music out and find their friends and do the work and go on tour and do that, go independent. That's where you can just control your own fate and your own destiny. Um, I, I managed Ro James. When Ro was outside of, of a major, Ro was killing it. The world was on him. He was that dude. He went inside. They they lured him in with money and the label's going to do this, the label's do that. And they killed Ro's career. They they, they, they they had too much restraints. They wanted to just, they wanted to control. And Ro's career has, has gone off the track of what it was supposed to be. Not Ro's fault, but because he went inside. That album, that first yeah. album was nuts. Yeah. And the second album was good. Yeah. He didn't get the push yeah. that he should have because, again, the game changed. The radio wasn't playing it like that or whatever. So independent artists need to, I mean, artists that have real music, real talent stuff, you just got to get out there and find your, your niche and, like, live off your niche. I, 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 there's one thing that I really want to talk to you about before – I got like a couple more questions before we wrap. This is, I mean, I could talk to you all day about the industry. This has been amazing. But this is, this I got to talk to you about because a lot of folks do not tell the truth. Gatekeepers. Mm. And what I mean by gatekeeper, you're a black manager. You are a black man who has managed some of the biggest artists. We haven't even gotten to you know, your full roster of artists that you've touched at some point, but you are a black manager. And what I have experienced in various forms of media, whether it's writing, whether it's television, in terms of trying to get access to folks for interview, I'll give you an example. We were talking at the top of the hour and I, I guess I can, I can talk about it now. Literally today, today, the press release dropped because MSNBC, MSNBC has greenlit my own uh, special, my new special that I'm going to be co-hosting, which remain, mm -hmm. which remain Lee, about Black men in America. And it's called Black Men in America, The Road to 2024. And it is looking at what's on our minds and the conversations we are having headed into the political season that is. Um, I can't, it's already been taped. We, we started taping all the fall of last year. I can't tell you the number of black men, some of whom you may have mentioned maybe once or twice in passing, but they would be on the tip of your tongue who we couldn't get to sit down with us because of the gatekeepers, because of the folks who they're black artists. Some of them talk about black shit. Some of them talk about culturally relevant stuff, but their entire teams are white. And so in terms of what's relevant to their teams and their teams giving them the green light to say, oh, you need to do this. is like, nah, you don't need to do this outlet. You need to go over here and give this exclusive Black. to these culture vultures. Or don't give a damn. Can you just, it, it, it is 
is so frustrating to me, but I know for you as a black man who is a manager, a very, very capable and experienced manager, can you talk just a little bit about what that's like and how you've had to navigate that? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting powder keg for me because first of all, a lot of the problem is our fault. I won't tell you how many artists that I've sat with or that I've, I've over the years that really believe that white is right. No matter, like as a yeah. black manager who managed the biggest rap group of all time, we can argue Wu-Tang, I don't care. I'm going to say I'll cast because it's me. But I am almost only as good as the last thing I've done, where I know for a fact white managers mm -hmm. that have done way less have not built anywhere near the number of careers I've built over and over again, will get looks because they're white, but that's our people. Because our people still think white is right. Our people will still choose a white lawyer over a black lawyer, right? But then, Talk then about it. The, the gatekeeper thing, and, and it's funny because I, I watched the, I watched Cat on Club Shay Shay, and, and I watched everybody pull away, and I was like, there's gatekeepers in everything we do. Every, any, every industry, everything you do, there's gatekeepers. Um, some people, some people that look like us are great at navigating both sides of it. They're really good at it. And they, they are the ones you want to get in there because they get in there, they can navigate that side and they pull some of us through. And that's how, that's how we get in and we grow inside of an industry. There are some that get in there and close the door and don't let any of us do because they want to be the person that has that access. They don't oh, really want You want to be the they one with the power. One. Yeah. But the problem is whenever they let us in, we come in, we take over, we get the flavor, we change the whole game. We, it's like, now we in the door. The gatekeepers hate that. But when you look at the music industry now, for example, um, you needed some gatekeepers. I think in most industry you need some gatekeepers because some gatekeepers are keeping the the quality level up. You understand know what I'm saying? Like some gatekeepers prevent. Yeah, no, I get it. No, no, no. That's you need gatekeepers in community because that's the only thing. Community and culture are two places where gatekeepers are essential because that's going to dictate who gets in, who doesn't, what you allow in. And what you allow proximity to. So I do understand the value of it. What I'm always crazy about is how do you let someone who's not even from Tell the you. culture become a gatekeeper of the culture? It's That's whitest, the part that drives me nuts. It's, unfortunately, it's the whitest right from ourselves most of the time. It's I had I had a I had yeah. an artist who was who we were talking about management. And we had met a couple of times and he was like kind of on the verge of maybe getting his look. And he came to me, he was like, yeah, Blue, I want you to work with me. Whoop, do whoop, do whoop, the whole nine. I was like, all right, cool. I see what you're trying to do. It looks like a movement. Bam. He said, yeah, but I also want to bring in this, um, a pop manager to handle the pop stuff. And I was like, what to do to who? What, what part of my sign of me says, I don't know how to do pop. What part of what I do says I, Outcast was two guys from Atlanta, very country, very whatever. I, we the biggest CeeLo Green, pop like Macy Gray, pop like I've done a lot of pop like. But for you to think it's okay for you to sit down with me, 
and tell me, I want you to do this, the black stuff, but I want to bring in this white guy to do the white stuff, is so insulting <laughs> that I walked wild. up. I walked that is wild. Like, I was like, you worked it out with them. It's all good. But I will honestly tell you, there is a lot of that. There's a lot of that, obviously. You oh, know, I know. There's a lot of times where some of these companies just get that look simply because that's what they are. And even those companies still hire us because they know they need us. Because <laughs> right, <laughs> but right. the black guy at the company is doing all the work, but the white guy's your manager so that you can be someplace and say, I have this white manager and poke your chest out like you said something. I, I, you know, I, I appreciate that because uh, it's a space that, and it's a, a feeling and a phenomenon that I've experienced over and over again in media where certain people just won't touch certain media because it's black media or they consider it black media and it's not big enough for them or it was big enough for them or right for them at a certain point, point in their too, career. Now it's too urban. It's too... Yeah, I was like, oh, I, I can't go over there no more. It's like it's crazy to me. Um, I want to have some fun before we get out of here. Uh, we've talked about you know some of the artists that you've you've you've. This is a two part question. Could be related. Could could may not be. At the time you first met Outcast, like the the first like time you met Outcast, what did you think? Like what did the like like walk me through that? Oh, so. Cause, cause, you know, you gotta have an eye and an ear to know where they were at Southern Playalistic and think, yo, I'm gonna make this the greatest rap group of all time. That takes a lot of vision and a lot of ear. So I, I would love to give my ear that much credit. Um, what the story, how the story goes, <laughs> Shaquem and myself flew down to Atlanta to get Monica for manager, Monica Arnold. Um, Queen Latifah had run into Dallas Austin. Dallas gave La the, the Monica's tape. Monica sent it and told her <coughs> him to go get her for management. So we flew to Atlanta for that. While we were there, we stopped by the Face Records to check out LA. Check in one to see LA, check in them know we was in his town. While we're there, LA explains that he has this new group. He had just dropped a record on the Christmas album that blew up. And and LA's thinking. Shaquem, he does Naughty by Nature. His company can help me with my rap group. So we go, all right, well, we're going to stay one more day and we meet with the guys. And so first impression was, all right, two guys, they seem cool. They, it wasn't like you, I, you can't sit there and go. As soon as I walked in, I was like, yo, these guys, Dre's a star and this is that. It was kind of like them looking at us strange, like, who are these New York niggas? Like, because we ain't from there. Um, and yeah. I think between Miss Benjamin and Dre's mother and them, they realized, hey, New York is kind of where shit is at, and it could help us more than the dudes that we've been trying to pick down here that don't really have the relationships. Um, so to be honest, my initial thought when I got North, I got um, Outcast is I didn't necessarily get it at first. That wasn't what I, I'm literally born and raised in the Bronx. I grew up on Cedric Avenue. Like, I grew up on the block where all this started. So my world is I'm as New York as anybody. So I had to right. get into the Atlanta movement by just being there. And I was there with Monica and them and doing all the shows with them and stuff. 
But honestly, my first goal when I got out there, I just wanted to make them as big or bigger than Naughty by Nature and Tribe Called Quest because Shaquem and Chris Lighty were my idols. And they, I'd watched their movement. And mm-hmm. for me, it was, all right, well, this is my group. It's like I had the Fushnikens. Shaquem gave me the Fushnikens first. But I caught the Fushnikens as the run was starting to come to an end and whatever was going to happen with them. But outcast, I was getting them from Giddy Up so I could really put my stamp on it. So the first step was just to get them as big, if not bigger, than Tribe and Naughty. That was honestly where it went to. To end up where we ended up at was really more of a result of as we reached each goal that I was placing in my head, I, I broadened what the goal was. So first it was be as big as Naughty and Tribe. Then it was be the biggest rap group. What you see with Love Below and Speaker Box is me trying to make them you too. My marketing and everything is I'm trying to make them the biggest band in the world. They're making their music. I'm not part of creatively, musically. I just trust that they're going to give me the tools to do that. But my goal is to make Outkast the biggest band in the world. And U2 was the biggest band in the world to me. And so the combination of me having a vision for that and them having a vision musically, along with them having a chip on their shoulder because they're from the South, they feel like they're not getting it just due. And I got a chip on my shoulder, partly because I don't think they're getting it just due because I'm in New York and Atlanta, so I'm seeing how New York is treating them. And I got a chip on my shoulder because now I'm trying to make my idols my rivals. Now I want to be bigger than Shaquem and Chris. Y'all gonna respect Family Tree like people respect Slavery and Violator. So I'm using tools and tricks and everything to just grow it. So on the outside, yeah, it, it, would, it would be easy for me to go, yeah, as soon as I saw it, I knew they'd be there. Nah, realistically, as soon as I saw it and I started doing shows with them and I could see the reaction, I could see the reaction. I saw how girls reacted to, to Dre. So I was like, okay, that's Tretch. Or, or that's that tip. Like, I got that side. And then I watched how Big Boy kept the streets happy and cool with everybody and stuff like that. I was like, all right, that's Vin. That's Fife. Yeah. That's Vinny or Fife. Then yeah. I was like, oh, wait, but Big Boy can rhyme better. So make sure you never let the world put him in to a sidekick position. So it was never a time where I was going to let people place Big Boy and a, and a, and a subpar like, if people want to judge their rap skills and stuff like that, but you can never go through anything that we did where you ever felt like it wasn't equal members. You can choose your favorite if you want, but you're going to respect them as a group or duo because that's how we always portrayed it. So, yeah, I think it was having the opportunity to watch Shaquem and Chris Lighty do what they did with Tribe and Naughty and then pick a part and do it with Outkast. And that's kind of what the result was. In your career, um, is there a moment or an artist who, and, and I really do appreciate you being candid about the fact that like at first you were like, all right, two dudes from Atlanta. Okay, cool. But was there ever an artist who, upon first meeting them, seeing them or hearing them, you was like, that mother is a star. <laughs> and like, like just off rip. Like, who who was the artist that did that for you? And what was that like? I think I've had artists do that. I've been blessed to have that a couple times. I think the first time I sat down and Life Jennings played his guitar and hit the whole thing, I was like, yo, this dude's got something that needs to be out there. 
and needs to do his thing. So Life Jennings will be an example. Um, Big Sean, the first time I heard Big Sean rhyme, I was like, yeah, this kid's like, he's tapping into something. Like, I see I see why Ye wanted to sign him and stuff. He still got to find some things in it, but I could tell he was that. Um, there was actually a white artist I managed named Cody Simpson from Australia. That, that yeah. so I went, I went to Australia three, four times, um, trying to get him over and all that. But he was another one where I was like, That's a big trip, bro. It's a long, it's a long ass trip. Chasing, you know, when you're on that hunt, you're trying to do what you gotta do, you're gonna go back and forth. Um, but I think Cody was one of those artists you saw, um, by the way. And Monica, Monica was somebody that as soon as I met Monica, like I listened to the music, it was dope, but as soon as I met this little 13 year old girl, I was like, she could be Whitney, as big as Whitney or anything. Vocally, she had the presence. She's mm. a little star. She's super smart. Um, she had all the tools, I felt, to be as big as she wanted and as far as she wanted to go in the industry. Um, I'm trying to think of any other artist that just kind of the day one blew you away with, like, the talent undeniable. Um, there's been a lot. Like, I've I really been blessed. I, 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 I tell people that I, I've been honored and and blessed to have managed artists during what a lot would say would be the greatest era of music since Motown or equal to Motown. And most people don't know, they know Outkast. They don't know the Youngbloods. They know the Jagged Edge, but don't know about the Eric Benet and the Case. And um, they don't know like, like the Nas and working with Buster for a minute and the experiences that you've had a chance to touch some amazing talent and to have been able to touch them at pivotal points in their career. I, I managed Gina Thompson. Um, and so Gina's first record, we introduced the world to Missy. So, yeah. That was huge. That was it. That, that record is so, a huge record. But you don't think about it when you're doing it. You're just like, yeah, I know Missy. We met Missy with Jodeci and she's good peoples and blah, blah, blah. And you realize when you look back with AJ, look back and go, Hey, I was a part of introducing the world to Missy Elliott. And 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 you have those moments that you look back and and you realize like it was all a blur. We didn't know what we were doing. We just knew we were doing it and we were just trying to do it at a high level. I think part of the problem that these kids have now is they're not trying to do anything original, they're trying to copy what we did. They're like mm, Yeah, no, you you hear that with the music, uh, you see it with the, the lifestyle, everything. You can view it. Yeah, I was saying with the with the fashion, all of it, it's just the same thing on repeat, and it's just not original, and it doesn't hit. Um, man, this has been phenomenal. Really quickly before we get out of here, tell me when when can we look for this book? That's what that's what the people want to know because the book has all the jewels in it. We had such a substantive conversation about the industry, which I'm good with. That we didn't even get to any good stories, but I need to know when can we get this so, book? Um, my goal is to get the book out by spring, early summer at the latest. Um, and then I want to get on the road and talk to the kids. Like I, I found a new enjoyment um, speaking on panels, trying to, you know, share. I don't, I'm not somebody that believes that the knowledge garnered is, is supposed to leave with me. So um, I'm doing a lot more mentoring mm. where I can, young managers. They got questions. They can always find me on Instagram. Um, I'm the check finder on Instagram. Um, I think that one of the things that I, I, I realized a few years ago was that C. Dolores Tucker 
who was public enemy number one to a lot of us when she was speaking, was right. She was the wrong messenger. She was totally right. Everything that she was saying was right. She was the wrong messenger. And so mm. we reacted like we did with everything. Hostility, pushback, kicked her, ooh, hate her. What I'm trying to do with the book and getting out and speaking is I'm trying to find a way to be the right messenger and, and connect and help us um, stop repeating some of the mistakes that we made. I'm trying to, I, I, I dealt with depression for a, a long time and I, I try to talk about depression because I, I, it's important that other black men see strong black men willing to talk about it and talk about mental health and things of that nature. So as great as my management career has been, and I hope that, you know, with the right artists, I, I have another great run. I think that now I'm shifting into a place where I'm doing more film and TV. I'm doing more um, event planning festivals and stuff like that. But putting this book out and being able to use it as a tool and a platform to get out there um, and talk about mental health and trying to kind of, I look now 30 years later and look at the damage we did to the community as well, unsuspectingly yeah. and not with intention, but the damage. And I think it's on those of us that have survived and are still here to try and help the community self-correct, course correct. I can't be mad at that, man. That's one thing that I always sort of ask about. Again, you've provided so much context to the discussions that I have with folks that are really substantive and meaty around the industry, around the history of hip hop and its impact, both good and bad. Um, and so it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Last, last, last <laughs> question, I promise, is uh, we play this game on the Charles Coleman podcast called Life or Death Karaoke. Mm -hmm. And so uh, elaborate Life or Death Hip Hop Karaoke. So you don't have to do, you don't got to do okay. the verse. You don't got to do the verse on the show. But the concept is someone you love, someone who's near and dear to you is kidnapped and they, they call you up and they let you know, yo, we got them. But if you could get one verse from one hip hop song flawlessly right, we'll let them go. What's your Children's one verse or your one song? Well done. <laughs> Children's Story is a popular one. It gets chosen a lot. <laughs> I think MC Light, MC Light told Children's Story. Big Daddy Kane chose, um, he chose uh, uh, Audio mm -hmm. 2. Top billing. He told us talk top billing. Uh, I think Bun, Bun B, what did he go with? Bun B was just like, yo, I'll lose it. <laughs> but Children's Story has been chosen by a, couple, by a couple of folks. That's a good one, though. It's, it's, it's kind of one of those, once you get that first you, line you out, yeah. you're good to go. Another one another one that's popular with hip-hop, Life or Death karaoke, is Run DMC Suck okay. MCs. Because once you start it, it's yeah, like, it, it just... Right back to you, you just so that's why Children's Story... One, because Rick's my man, I love Rick, and I think he's one of the greatest um, storytellers. And two, it's just something that is always on repeat in, in anywhere in your world, in the world you go. I've been to Ghana, it's fresh. fresh. You play it, that comes on, and everybody's like, excuse me, Uncle Ricky, and you just slip right into it. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, that would be my, if I had to save someone's life. And I'm not great with verses. Like, I, as, as, as much as I spent my career in music, I'm a marketing guy by nature. So I'm, I look at everything from a marketing angle. So like knowing verse like yeah. Ed Lover, 
every hip hop verse. Like Ed knows Wu Tang verses to E Forty verses. I've, yeah, I've seen I've seen him cover. I've seen him do covers with yeah, like his he, new band. Dude, all that. And yeah, I'm always, verse. I'm always impressed by yeah. his his recall of that. But I'm kind of more um, the the certain ones just kind of uh, and punch you in the face. And Slick Rick is just always one of those for me. Blue Williams, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Blue Williams, founder of Family Tree Entertainment. He's in media, he's in TV, he's in music. But today he was in the podcast space with Charles Coleman on the Charles Coleman podcast. We want to thank you so much for this amazing, amazing conversation. My brother, I hope to keep in contact with you because there's so much more that we can talk about. And I think there may be some opportunities for collaboration in the future. But Thank you sincerely for joining us today. I thank you for having me. I am always available. I enjoy intelligent conversations with intelligent brothers. You keep up the good work. You know, when they let us on TV, you, you know, speak truth to power. I always respect that. And if there's anything I can do, I'm always available. And, you know, I tell people I've had the same phone number since 1997. I'm always here. My man. That's going to do it for another Black Brilliance branded conversation. That's Blue Williams. I'm Charles Coleman Jr. And we'll see you next week. Peace.